Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today, my guest is Paul Vanderclay. Paul Vanderclay runs a YouTube channel, which he initiated to discuss the works of Jordan Peterson through his lens as a Christian reformed a church pastor. Um, he then became interested in the works of John DeVakey and the ideas of the meaning crisis and has had conversations with many people who are focused on these same areas. And that's how I became interested in his perspective. Um, he was kind enough to bring me onto his podcast last spring, and we had a really wonderful conversation. So um, I wanted to bring him on and, and get his perspective on these things and on some of the themes that we've been developing within this podcast, the themes around meaning and around the broader societal problems that we're facing uh, due to the meaning crisis. And while a Christian reform pastor might not be the first thing that you'd expect on the Evolve to Play podcast, I think that Paul is one of the most insightful and kindest interlocutors that I could possibly uh, exchange with. And this was a deeply fruitful conversation and I hope to have Paul back on soon. So I think that um, those of you who are interested in the meaning side of my work and the philosophical side of my work, I think you'll get a lot out of this. And I look forward to uh, hearing how people respond. So without further ado, uh, Paul Vanderklaff. How you been, man? It's been a while. I've been good, I've been good. I, I'm. I think we're nearing at least a maybe coming out of COVID a little bit because a lot of my seniors have their vaccines. So they're dribbling back into church, which is just terrific to see them and hoping that, you know, when this pandemic thing came down, most of my congregation is over 80. And so I, I was really concerned about just a real loss of life. But yeah. the only person in the congregation that actually got COVID is in his 50s like me, and he got over it pretty quickly. So that's that's it. So I'm pretty happy about that. Good, man. I, uh, my parents are inoculated, or my, my mom, and my dad's not going to get inoculated because, you know, he doesn't believe in vaccines. So uh, <laughs> but my dad, uh, my dad's really good at not dying. So I'm less worried about him. He's, <laughs> He, uh, a few years ago, he, um, he was standing in a, um, the bucket of a tractor, uh, cutting limbs off a tree with a chainsaw. And he hit, uh, he hit something in the tree that bucked the chainsaw back on him. It hit him in the nose. And, um, and so, <laughs> so he came out all right. He's healed remarkably. Like, you know, he had this huge gash on his nose and you can't even tell anymore. I don't know. But uh, I, I said to him after that, I was like, man, how many of your nine lives do you think you had left? <laughs> well, Rafe, if I was a cat, I'd been dead a long time ago. 
He's a character. Yeah. I mean, he almost died of malaria. He's fallen off buildings multiple times, had rolled a crane truck and, you know, any number of uh, fallen through glass panes on buildings he was building and all that stuff. So, Oh man. Oh man. It's completely random tangent, but there it is. Yeah. Well, it's that there, there are folks like that. That's, that's amazing. So. And then there are other folks. One weird thing happens. Boom. They're gone. <laughs> okay. I got to tell you this because so my dad uh, doesn't have insurance or anything, right? He's, he's a rebel against the system. So, he he goes to Mexico to get like dental work done. So he got an abscess tooth last year or two years ago. And I was in Europe during this time. And he let it go so long that the staff got out of the tooth and into his bloodstream. And so he lost 40 pounds and was sleeping 20 hours a day. And they took him to the hospital. I'm like, oh, he's just got a flu or something. And they bring him back to the hospital and uh and and they discovered that the staph infection has gotten into his aorta and has worn a hole in his aorta um and uh yeah so so i was in europe and my family's trying to get hold of me and i changed out my sim card and everything and you know my dad had to go get our open heart surgery and we had a chat and it was like you know he didn't know if he was going to come out the other side and you know, but sure enough, four months later, he's climbing a hundred foot tree to build a tree house. <laughs> that's, that's my dad. That's awesome. That's a terrific story. Yeah. yeah. So last year has been, been pretty crazy for me with, uh, with COVID and the impacts on my business and then uh, helping to organize the embodiment conference. So like I told you, I kind of lost contact with a lot of folks that I, I wanted to be chatting with, but uh, just couldn't couldn't reach out to anybody because it was just too much going yeah. on. Yeah. Well, any anybody that's sort of in the business of bringing people together, especially physically, it's just yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> just had a year off, but not in a good way. Yeah. Well, it was more work than I've ever done in a year. I mean, we, we organized it, uh, con an online conference for half a million people. We helped organize that. And, uh, Oh my goodness. That was, that was an insane and crazy, uh, crazy experience. So that, that, that was kind of what, what drove me to, uh, to utter exhaustion. So yeah, there's been, we, when did we speak last? It was like spring of last year. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably getting towards a year. I haven't kept track of it, but could be this it 20 i mean this was the year that nothing happened and everything changed that's how i talk about this year um because everyone was just at home but the world changed so it's yeah. a strange year i saw this guy balaji srinivasan is a kind of a tech guru guy really interesting guy he said um there are there are decades in which nothing happens and uh weeks in which decades happen yeah. That was February, March, April of last year, right? Six weeks, the future arrived. Um, so that was quite a, quite an interesting year. And I don't know, it's, it's interesting that we're, we're conversing now. I feel like since we scheduled this call, like lots of things have happened in the circles of, of stuff that we both like to pay attention to. I mean, Jordan <laughs> Peterson is back. He's talking to Jonathan Pajot. He's talking to, uh, Brett Weinstein. Um, He's going to talk to John Verveke. That I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So crazy. Yeah, that's. I'm really looking forward to that because I mean, obviously, those two guys are pretty much the the. the they've colonized my mind more than anybody else, basically. Yeah. 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 It'll be very. It'll be very very interesting because, of course, you know they have a relationship that far precedes. You know, they were colleagues far before Jordan's first wave. And, you know, John, um, of course, John is John, but he's, you know, he, he really pushes back on Jordan since he's been back in some of the more recent things has sort of doubled down on, on the hero, you know, the hero archetype, which is of course what, what, or Jordan is doubled, doubling down on that. And John is sort of pushing against that. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see where their conversation goes. Yeah. Did you see my conversation with, with John about the heroic archetype? No, no. Yeah, we actually had a pretty interesting conversation about that because after, so so John did that discussion with Anderson, Anderson Todd. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of were really pushing back on that. And uh, and I made the argument to, to John that uh, that he was conflating the idea of the hero with the idea of the warrior. And that, that the warrior is- uh, oh, I think just, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. one expression. And over the course of that conversation, I think John moved a lot more towards being open to the idea that 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 the pursuit of self-transcendence, which is sort of what the way that John uh, would frame it, uh, can equally be framed as a hero's journey and as a as a pursuit of the heroic self. They're, they're really the becoming a sage is is maybe an expression of of heroism as well. And so hopefully that that uh, that I mean. I, I think that there's there's really good grounds there. The, the big, the, the interesting sort of, um, I suppose there's a couple of interesting things. One is the interpretation of Young, right? Because uh, you know, uh, big influence on both of them, and 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 you know, I think Jordan sees Young as a Christian, or at least uh, some of the folks in this circle are arguing that Jordan's like, ah, that that Young was a Christian at least at the end of his life. And, uh, and, and, uh, Verveke sees him as a, as a non-theist and, you know, and then that, that also plays into their own positions there. Right. Which are quite yep. interesting. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, but then there's the big, the big thing for me is, uh, that I find interesting is, you know, you look at Peugeot, you look at, at Peterson, um, there's this emphasis on the idea of having to live within a story. Whereas with Verveke, uh, he views the story as secondary to the practice of dialogue and, and, and practices, right? And so he elevates those things. So those, those, are, um, those are tension points, um, but I think they're extremely productive tension points. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see it, see what comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right on, on all of those counts. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting the way, let's say, Warrior has a negative resonance in certain communities and not in others because in you know say pentecostal christian circles the warrior motifs are enormous even though these are not violent communities i mean people are always talking about prayer warriors and if you think about that it's sort of like well that's interesting why it it just it just con it just conjures an imaginary that people find 
I, I think it's psychologically mobilizing for people because obviously fight or flight, that's just a, a totalizing psychological experience. And so even in a highly, let's say, non-physical environment, like many Protestant churches, all of that stuff sort of gets taken up into the head, but all that acceptation happens. And that's, I think that's partly why all of that imagery, which, um, which, which is, which is deeply rooted in us sort of gets taken up and, and used so pervasively. So then to me, it's an interesting question. Okay. Why the well, I guess I understand why the timidity around it from other corners, because like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't want these things to come. We don't want these things to come to blows. And that's always a, a, a threat for, for human beings. But it's, so it's been, it's been fascinating watching John navigate all of these conversations with, with all of the, these different communities. And especially because Jordan sort of, mobilized so much and helped so many other people find each other that he, in a sense, had the first take at setting the foundation. And of course, John comes in with all of his language. So it's a, it'll be a, it'll be a very, very interesting conversation. And I hope it's, I hope it isn't just an hour or two. I hope they, I hope they agree to have a, a more ongoing dialogue, but you know, Jordan is Jordan and it's quite clear Jordan does what Jordan wants to do. He doesn't have to, he's got that FU money now. He didn't have to do what anybody else wants. <laughs> I mean, as a fan of, of Jordan's, uh, I feel like his own personal health and his, the, the things about his work that at least are most intriguing to me, we better served by conversations by with people like Ver, uh, Verveke yeah. than by some of the bigger names that uh, yeah. that are sort of occupying the same cultural space as him. Yeah. Um, I find those conversations a lot less generative, and and I think the the attention they attract isn't necessarily as healthy for him. No, no I, I agree hundred percent. It, it's it'll be interesting to see how the experience with the times and that fiasco shapes this. If he sort of, well, you know, lately just the burst of his work. He's been all sorts of podcasts. I mean, he's been everywhere all at once. We hear nothing from the guy for a year. Now he's yeah he's workahol i mean I, part of me wonders if anybody's ever sat down and say jordan do you think working like this is a good idea and and a tammy made some of those comments too it's like you know might you want to ease off a little I, I, he doesn't want to that's for sure he's he's yeah. putting out stuff like mad i mean it, it's interesting i've thought a lot about you know jordan's pick up the heaviest thing that you can carry it um and that'll give your life meaning idea and uh, I think that a lot of people, a lot of young men in particular, really need that message. They need the message that it's that there's it's worth challenging yourself. But there's a flip side to that, which is that um, you can't carry the heaviest thing that you can carry forever, and it will break you. Right? Even something that you can carry for a little while can break you. And that was my experience last year. Right? Like I, I put myself in a into a series of obligations, and I was able to to take care of all of my obligations, but they were too much for me. And, and it resulted in like really a loss of a lot of things that, that were most important to me in my own personal life. And, uh, and I, it didn't feel really meaningful. It felt extremely um, alienating from myself in a way. 
And so I was thinking about the message. I was thinking about, you know, balancing with like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and the, the flow state, right? It's like the flow state is the state where you're optimally balanced between challenge and uh, competence, right? But there's also a cycle to it. You have to like go into the relaxation aspect and sometimes you have to challenge yourself into the anxiety, but you can't just exist at the highest level of challenge all the time. And, uh, and, and generally, and this is something that, uh, that Stephen Kotler talks about in The Rise of Superman, is that the people who have the most intense flow state experiences also often have deep depressive episodes that are associated with the other side of it. It's like your body can only run super high norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone for like s such a period of time. And then it's like, if you burn through all your resources, you may have to, you may have to let your field lay fallow for a period of time. And I think, you know, Jordan was, was, was on top of a wave and he said it, you know, this, uh, the only way to get off this wave is to crash. Yeah. He saw what was coming, but I'd hope that he learned the lesson that, that getting back up on the wave is going to result in the same crash if he keeps doing it. Um, is that really a good long-term strategy? Wave crash, wave crash. No, I, 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 it's interesting how this stuff has, you know, I think about C.S. Lewis writing about, you know, he, no one could, you know, no one could put Lewis down when he was there at the Socratic club, but he also wrote about how, after all of his greatest victories, his his he his faith felt the weakest. He it, it's that same pattern of of exaltation, depression. You find that it, you find that in in the book of in the stories of Eli, Elijah, who has this this mountaintop peak, literal mountaintop peak experience showdown with the prophets of Baal, and after that climactic victory where the prophets of Baal are slaughtered Jezebel says you're dead and he runs away and hides and basically you know spends a good amount of time just cowering and uh, the patterns all over the place yeah I mean in my own life I've, I've you know in my training I'm, I'm just now accepting it it's like when I, I find myself hitting that wave and it's like everything's going it's like it's not gonna last forever, bro. Right? Enjoy it while it lasts. Yep. yep. Be prepared for the other side of it. Yeah. And I think that that uh, that there there's something that needs to be said about that restorative side. That there's there's a little too much yang in Peterson's message for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of I guess bring it back to uh, to the Paul Vanderclay um, take on the world. We're both Peterson commentators, let's say, but but you have you've developed your own set of ideas and in, in in interaction with your 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 role as a pastor and your uh, your reading of Peterson and Verveke and Tom Holland and all these other people. So one of the things that you talk about a lot is modernity and the fading of modernity, and I find this a really interesting and compelling idea, but. I'm always kind of like, well, what do you exactly do you mean by modernity? So I think a good place to start and start reading our conversation and introducing you to, to my audience would be, well, what do you mean by modernity? What is this thing that is fading? I think it's in, in some ways, McGilchrist's take of the, of the rational mind, the, the mastery of the, of the rational mind over the intuitive. 
So just to, to, to preface that for a second, for folks who aren't familiar, referring to uh, the work of Ian McGilchrist, wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. And uh, McGilchrist, what is his background? Well, first he was in literature. And then he, I, if I, re, I don't, I'm not an expert on McGilchrist. And then I think he got into science. He has a very interesting story in terms of how he got into this. Yeah. And, but it's, so, so modernity, modernity imagines that human, well, talk about self-transcendence. Modernity imagines that via reason, kind of a, a, a combination of reason and empiricism, we can transcend ourselves and see the world from no place. And that sort of became the, you know, there's lots of different ways I'd describe it. One of which is Wilfred Sellers idea where there are two ways to view the world. One is the scientific image. That's like viewing out of one eye. And the other is the manifest image, which is viewing out of the other eye. The difference between them is the normativity. So it's the is ought distinction. And what modernity is able to do, Peterson talks about this in his transliminal interviews, which are right before his wave, where in a sense, you take out, you take out the person from the universe and you have a world of objects and, and you flatten the world in that way. And if you flatten the world in that way, it affords a, a view of the world in a particular way that is enormously powerful to achieve certain things in certain ways. And that is what modernity has done. Now, the problem that you have is eventually, the, I, I, talk about, I talk about the meaning crisis sort of in two phases. One was that the height of modernity is sort of Newtonian physics. There are these objects, we can calculate distance, we can calculate friction. So if anybody's ever learned Newtonian mechanics, there it is, it's a world of objects. Then along comes quantum theory and in, Newton, in a Newtonian world, atoms are these tiny little balls that can be manipulated and that's how the world works. And physics then gets weird. And we discover that there's more space in the table in front of me than there are particles. And you'd say, well, that's strange because this table seems awfully solid. And if I hit my head on it, my head hurts. Then we begin to, so we're, th we're still thinking about the table. And so we're still forgetting ourselves and looking at the table. But at some point we begin to realize, wait a minute, if there's more space than particles in the table in front of me and I hit my head on it, there's more space than particles in my head. So we take this, I call it a monarchical vision of the world. We take, the, take this monarchical vision of the world and we begin to look at ourselves and all of the processes, impersonal processes that we were pursuing in our understanding of the table in front of me, now we begin to apply to ourselves. And what this means is that we disappear too. We, we have taken persons out of the world so completely, we have taken ourselves out. And this in many ways, I think initiates this meaning crisis. And, and this has been this, this understanding of the cost of modernity has been growing for a while. Modernity really reached its peak right before the First World War. And since then, it's been coming more and more apparent that we have to figure out where, where persons or consciousness as we experience it, 
how all of these things need to be reintegrated into our picture. Otherwise, we have sort of this cheating world where where we pretend that the world is a world of objects, but we exclude ourselves and say, we are masters of this world, but there's no ought in that world. And so that's, that's in many ways the horror that the horrors that we are facing, and then the attempt to reintegrate the personal. Now, part of the irony, I think of, of let's say John's project, and, and John, I think was exactly right in using this language of the meaning crisis. Part of, part of the irony in John's project is that cognitive science is one of the chief movers that causes the meaning crisis. So in other words, the more I, the more, how can I say this? The more I can see the mechanics of my personhood, the more illusory I continue to become. And you just keep having this question who then is pulling the strings on this experience of personhood that I'm having? Is it, is it my genetics? Is it the flow of history? Is it, and, and that sort of then leans into this conversation between Peugeot, which is emergence, sort of growth from the bottom, which is, is sort of John Verveke's project, and emanation, which is a gift from the above, um, which is Peugeot's project. And that's calls it an above, right? Yeah, because it's God. I mean, we all live in the mind of God. And so our consciousness, our personhood, this all comes from above. It doesn't come from below. And that's there's the conflict. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a lot of threads there that I would like to to dig into. Because I, I think I agree with you that 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 the, the that modernity, uh, let's call it, um, it it's flawed in some sense in a way that it can't tell us some of the things that we need to know, or maybe it's telling us things that that uh, that we are don't have the context to know without harming ourselves by knowing. That's a cool way of saying it. Yeah. And, and at the same time, like I, I, I told John in one of our recent conversations that I, that I think I'm a non-theistic Christian. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know what that precisely means. I, we can break that down and, and get into it because I think it would be interesting to discuss with you. But one of the things that comes up, I, I just listened to your, your, your discussion of uh, Brett Weinstein's interview uh, with, with Jordan before this conversation. And you kept really hammering on this idea of what is the I that can decide to get outside of the programming? Because the worldview that you're describing is you are you are the you are the end result of the replicators, right? <laughs> like there's no, you know, this the Brett Weinstein's conception of consciousness seems to relatively naively sort of accept a, a Descartes, a Cartesian sort of separation of consciousness from the mechanics of, of, of evolutionary biology, which he's conceiving as essentially like a clockwork, right? In some sense. And, and yet the answer to the question is sort of 
that thing that I don't have a definition for, we're just going to use it and it's going to get us out of the problem. Or that thing that, that, that I have no way of grounding in my axiomatic structure, um, I'll wave my magic wand and it will fix the problem that I've identified within my axiomatic structure. Right. And, and the irony, the deep irony being that, especially before all of this other stuff, you can find him on podcasts talking endlessly about, well, I can explain exactly, I can explain all of these human behaviors by virtue of this, of this evolutionary code working itself out. Okay. Well, is you the explainer also a product of that code? Yeah. I mean, I'm... people have been posting this question to this, this action for a very long time now. And most of the time people just act like they don't see it. Yeah. I... Cognitive dissonance, I guess. Right. You, yeah. you, you like, and we're obviously, you know, everyone is, is, is potentially uh, engaged in this. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, that he's got, uh, warts on his face that I don't probably have on my own, but, um, but, but it's there and you can see it and, it, and it's really important to, to comprehend. And yeah, so, so I'm, I'm very curious to dig into that and, and I'm struggling cause there's just too much for me. I, I, one, one thing that's actually coming up for me is, uh, the work of this, uh, this, philosopher, fantasy novelist, uh, R. Scott Baker. Have you ever run into his work? No. I was talking to, to John Dravecki about this as well. He's, he's also from Toronto. Uh, he, he's everything but, uh, everything but a dissertation PhD candidate in philosophy who wrote this series of fantasy novels. And the first book in the series is called The Darkness That Comes Before. Oh. And the, the, the overarching series is called The Second Apocalypse. And the, 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 the darkness that comes before is the darkness that comes before thought, right? So a thought arises in you, where does it come from? What is its root? And essentially he is created within his fantasy world, a series of, of factions that kind of represent these different um, answers maybe to that question. So he had the, the main character, let's say, uh, Kelhus is the scion of a, of a line of monks who have studied the logos, right? They've studied, uh, they've studied the concept of causation for 2000 years and they have their, their sole purpose is to become the self-moving soul, to stand before the darkness that comes before everything else, right? So to become causal to everything else. And then they re-enter the world of men and the world of men that they enter is a world that, that is as Baker conceives the world of, of uh, the pre-modern, right? Like this is like, uh, uh, you know, imagine Homeric Greece, right? It's like that type of world. And this is a world in which there are gods um, and and there's a there's a there's a concrete morality, right? Snakes are more holy than pigs just because, right? And Baker's take on that is that that world is is actually morally repugnant from modern view, right? That it, that it's arbitrary and destructive, and the gods essentially are 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 just powers that are 
that are interested in, in, in using us to their ends. And then, and then the, the sort of the big bad guys is a race of aliens who represent essentially what uh, Brett Weinstein, what you were talking about in reference to Brett Weinstein, which was the idea of, of, of modernity essentially uh, descending into hedonism. Like they have recognized that they're that they have souls, but that those souls are completely irredeemable because of their sins, mm. and so their entire project is to shut the world off to the outside, and then all that plays out over the course of this novel, and it, and it comes to a thing. But it's fascinating because of the way that it plays with this, like the clash of of modernity, right, which is represented by the Dunyan, with uh, the traditional worldview, which is represented by uh, the rest of the world. And, and then this idea that, that without some kind of guiding principle, that what modernity collapses into morally is just justification of pleasure huh. right? and of power, right? Because what you want is just the power to make sure that your pleasures are taken care of right. and that you are, you are um, buffered from the dangers of, of someone, you know, preventing that from happening or, or using you instrumentally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just going to throw that at you and, 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 and see, see what you come up with because, because I have too many directions to go. And so I'm going to see what direction. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like an interesting book and it's you know, the irony of you know, the irony of modernity, of sort of a materialist modernity is that it says, okay, by if, if consciousness is, is simply derived from material, if, con- if consciousness is simply the product of a material, of the organization of, of material world, and we have pleasurable consciousness and uh, consciousness we'd like to avoid, why can't we, by manipulation of the material world, secure for ourselves the pleasurable consciousnesses that we wish to that we wish to live within, and always avoid the un the the non pleasurable consciousness? And this this is in some ways, I mean, that's that's practically a definition of hedonism. And we all also at the same time know it doesn't work. We see that. We see that demonstrated again and again and again. And we also know that there's a violation of something when we can have it and we might be able to have it through computer games, let's say, uh, computer simulations or drugs. I mean, we've had some of this available to us via drugs and Jordan, you know, in his classes would often make the, the comment about cocaine because that video. that's my, that's favorite. right. Cocaine, you just run. And then the, on that, if that is your, if that is your goal, the only reasonable way to live is a massive dose of cocaine with a bullet chaser, because now you have the, the, the duration of your life is immaterial because consciousness is sort of outside of time in a strange way. So you can flood yourself with blissful pleasure and then stop any chance at, at, at coming down from that. That would be the best way to live. None of us look at that and say, that's a good idea. Why not? You know, why, if you, if you have a child and 
especially a son, and you discover that that son is all they do, want to do is play a particular video game all the time. And you could say that son is leading a meaningful life with all those little characters, whatever the video game involves. The, the person is pursuing meaning, so experiencing meaning. So ups and down, highs and lows, all there plugged into this computer screen. And you look at that kid and say, that is a waste of everything that we have invested in this child. Why is that? And those are very hard questions to answer. We all know the truth of it, but we don't know what to say or do about it. We don't. And, and, and this to be, go ahead. Right, because I, I agree with you, right? But I would say that like many people who label themselves transhumanists, are, this is exactly what they're trying to, this is exactly what they view as the telos of human civilization. Right. To essentially, uh, you know, so rise above our fleshy nature and to be able to uh, embed our consciousnesses in something that more effectively allows us to spend all the time in that pleasurable, meaningful thing, completely divorced from reality. Because reality at that point is, is unimportant. Um, you know, and from their perspective, right? Uh, a kid playing video games, like he's just, he's just recognizing the next reality of, of, of where meaning should be derived from, right? Um, the the uh, irony is that some of the artists that are making video or movies like and our TV shows actually like The Good Place or Upload are skeptical as to how long we can pull that off. Can you, you know, when you because those those shows sort of play with afterlife questions, but it's interesting that people looking at that say and. Eternity in an afterlife is something that's undesirable because we will get bored. It's interesting. So I, I totally get that perspective, right? Yeah. Like when, when someone describes heaven, right? To me, that sounds, it, it sounds incredibly insipid and boring, right? The, the, the general descriptions of heaven, like let's all, Let's all sit on clouds and play harps and sing forever, right? No sex, no violence, no conflict to spice up life, right? Didn't, I think it was Solzhenitsyn who said, right? If you, if you gave humans nothing to do but uh, prepare wonderful food and propagate the species, the first thing they would do is break something just so something interesting. Uh, Dostoevsky, notes, notes from the underground. Yep. Okay. We have spite. That's if you've never read, it's a it's a fascinating little book. Yeah, I need to read that one. I, uh, so I, I tried to read uh, Jordan Peterson's reading list, and so I did did Crime and Punishment, which was which was hard but good. And then I did uh, the Brothers Karamazov, and and at the end of the Brothers Karamazov, I was like, um. The, the High Inquisitor scene is amazing. And the rest of the book just feels like a series of incidents in somebody's life who I don't care that much about. And there's no way that this is as good as Tolkien. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 you may love Dostoevsky, but, but I think there's better stuff out there. <laughs> Notes from the Underground is small. And there's actually a little video. Uh, uh, Notes from the Underground in 10 minutes. And you get the gist of it on YouTube. It's, it's a good video, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I can definitely do that. Um, but yeah, Brothers Karamazov definitely put me off, 
put me off Dostoevsky for, for a minute. Um, so I'll, just to reground for a second, I guess one of the central things that I like, well, the reason that I would like to have a conversation with you, there's a couple. One is, you know, you're interested in the same people as I'm interested in, right? You're digging into John Rick, you're digging into uh, to Peterson. There's not that many people who have thought that deeply about these, these characters who've read as much of their stuff, listened to as much of their stuff, or, or who've applied it to their own work. That's the other thing, right? I actually take Vervakianism and Petersonism and all this stuff, and I apply it to teaching parkour and martial arts. Um, you do that to being a pastor. And so that, that gives us a common ground. But, um, you know, most of my life, I would say that I have, or the largest segment of my life has been spent as a, as a, um, uh, uh, aggressive atheist, <laughs> right? Like I, I strongly would, you know, say that, 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 the, the idea of God is just a non-parsimonious, uh, superstition that's been passed down that offers no causal or explanatory power that we can uh can use going forward so that would would seem to indicate that you and i don't have that much ground to to converse on but more and more i'm i'm fascinated by this 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 problem of of you know peter one of the great quotes i think is you know we have the we have the knowledge to to build a nuclear bomb and we don't have the wisdom not to that's something Peterson says. All right. We are, we have become gods, but for the wisdom, right? That's another way of saying it. And, and there, and I'm increasingly convinced that, that atheism um, is impossible. <laughs> right. Like that you can avere the, the non-existence of a, a supernatural outside. And I think I do. Um, but you always have powers and principalities that are driving you that are above and beyond what you will ever even conceptually be able to perfectly describe. Um, and we have an inherent tendency to align ourselves in these things. And if we're not proactively thinking about or, or, or trying to answer that question intelligently, uh, that that can go very wrong. <laughs> that's that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah. So so man, there's so many so many roads there. But what I want to get at is this. So let's say that we agree that religion is a necessary component of a well structured human society, or maybe even a well lived human life, um, on some level or another. And at the same time, um, you and I are speaking to each other over the internet using computers and microphones and cameras and all of those things are products of scientific epistemology right and so often when people speak to the religious speak to the spiritual they it seems to me that the epistemologies are just either unclear i don't get what the epistemologies are <laughs> or they're incoherent. And especially they seem to be, they seem to want to colonize the space that, that, that scientific stuff has already colonized. So I really like 
Peterson, obviously, and he starts his book, Maps of Meaning, with there's two ways to look at the world. We can look at it as a view, uh, world of objects, and we can look at it as, as, a, as, a, as a place of action. And I see that as a challenge to, to modernity, but it's also a challenge to the religious because it's kind of saying, in the realm of objects, your claims now have to be subservient to claims that are rooted in the world of objects. That's how I read that. And I, 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 think, I, I think that John's probably closer to, to bringing these things together for me than anybody. Um, but I'm still not 100% satisfied by anything that I see out there. And I'm not sure that John's solution is scalable, right? I think that it works, it might work really, really well for highly cognitively sophisticated people who wanna work super hard to understand how the world works. And it might not, might not be like uh, something that an institution could be built off of. And so, so when we talk about that, that, that Brett Weinstein conversation, it's like, we have this central problem, which is, I think it's true, you know, Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger and all these people are talking about it. We're running strategies or we're running behavioral strategies uh, with power increases that result in potentially self-extermination, right? And the best, the best system we have for grounding truth doesn't appear to have any utility in helping us negotiate not killing ourselves. That's Is that a good description? That's a very good description. But that best, that best system of grounding truth is this. Because yes. the, the, what they mean by truth there is, is a product of this. And, and see, that's where Peterson, you know, to the degree that we knew it consciously, but we, he certainly captured our interest. I mean, right away when he said, true is, you know, the arrow is true. And when you say that the arrow or the shot was true, you don't mean the materiality of the physical arrow. You hmm. mean, and, and this is where, so another person that, that hasn't got anywhere near enough attention in this conversation has been Sevilla King in her work with Persig, which gets into this whole value question because that's that's the thing that that's the thing that you miss when you cover one eye you miss value and you say oh we can build an atomic bomb oh we can weaponize um we can weaponize these germs that are found in animals to create pandemics all over the world why don't we do it well that would be a value that would be a value question and, and I think to get back to your atheism, part of the way Christianity was able to, Christ, Christianity is, is this astoundingly limber religion that is able to colonize so many different cultures. That's, that's the reason that it has endured and thrived in this world as it has. And part of the way it snuck into modernity was by making God a thing. And so when atheists object to the thingness of God, they're really objecting to kind of the adaptation 
that Christianity took in modernity to bring God into the world of objects. But all of that created lots of dissonance around certain things, which if you listen to celebrity atheists, you just go down the line. They're, they're, they're highlighting all the different things because the opposite of theism is probably not atheism or non-theism. The opposite of theism is probably apathy and just, just animality in people. And, and if you, if you then understand, you know, Jordan, what's that? That's Baker, right? The opposite of, of worshiping gods is worshiping pleasure. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just living in our desires, satisfying our desires one at a time or whenever they arise, living by pure instinct. It's animality. And, but again, that's not just Christianity we're dealing with. We're dealing with almost every system that came about from human beings that someone stopped and said, hey, wait a minute. Just, just living, satisfying each conscious desire that has come upon my screen one at a time doesn't actually work because very quickly, C.S. Lewis talks about this with respect to instinct, that the, the problem with instinct is not that, you know, we don't have them. The problem is you can't put them in a hierarchy. Lewis doesn't use that language, but that's essentially what he says. Instinct has to fall within a hierarchy because on one hand, human life is full of choices and you need a value hierarchy in order to live in a world of action and make choices. Every choice you make asserts a value hierarchy. And so, you know, this is again, I, in that video, I played when Peterson and, and Peugeot and Weinstein shared a stage. I mean, Brett was kept talking about higher and lower in this and, and Peugeot's, you know, pulling out his hair saying, you, <laughs> this is incoherent. You are, you are, as you are, you are smuggling in value hierarchies here and you have. And so when Jonathan Peugeot was talking to rationality rules or Adam friended, he just keeps saying, it depends where you stand. And they look at him like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but Peterson sort of was in the middle and could sort of see both sides and could articulate both sides well enough that we began to see some of these tensions in our world. I think that that's a good description of, of, of what made him so compelling, certainly to me. And uh, there's interesting, I find it interesting the things that I was thinking about right before I encountered Peterson and how much they're sort of like, oh, you know, you know, I was thinking about the power of narratives and how we like the limitation of science in compelling human behavior or, or guiding human behavior. Uh, so as a teacher working with students, you know, I consumed a lot of scientific research around what is the optimal way to train, right? And I found that when I, when I shared that research in a very um, direct way, that it, it wasn't very moving, right? But when I told personal stories about my life and my training and my background and things that had happened, um, it, it clicked with people much more powerfully. And so I had, I noticed this power and I had started to ask, you know, 
well, what is the structure of story, right? How do I think about stories such that I can tell stories better that will help people live better? That was fundamentally what I was starting to get interested in, right? When I came encounter Peterson. And I was also thinking about the question of values, right? I was, where was this, there was an interesting conversation about this recently that I ran into. And I, um, but they're talking about the idea of self-esteem and, and how it's kind of, it's been, it's been a failed ideology, right? Yep. And, and that was something that I, that I was, that I was, you know, I put, put out a video right before I encountered Peterson called, um, you know, the self-worth esteeming, right? Which was basically this idea that the problem that people have in modernity isn't that they're not told to love themselves, right? The problem is rather that there's just not that much of them, right? And there could be a lot more. That's right. Capitalism, right? So, you know, Peterson loves to sing the praises of capitalism. And I think that the things that he says about capitalism are, are largely correct, right? It's, it's really done a lot of great things for us. But I also think that it, that it sets up some real problems, right? So you, I'm sure you're familiar with the paperclip problem, right? In AI? No. Okay. So it's a... As AIs were being developed, people became worried about what that potential power would look like. This analogy was created. If you if you imagine a sufficiently intelligent consciousness that it could sort of be, you know, omnipowerful, right? And that that happened to evolve itself out of a um, an AI built to maximize paperclip uh, production in a in a factory. That if that was its fundamental axiom, that it would turn the entire world into uh, into into paperclips. So if we invent an AI powerful enough to to um, uh, to to essentially bootstrap itself up into consciousness, and it's not perfectly aligned with human well-being, even if it's only malaligned by the slightest percentage, it will be the most terrifyingly oppressive thing ever. Right. And I actually think that we're already living through this reality. I think that's exactly what social media is. It's a yeah, series of yeah. AIs that are gods, right? They're, yeah. they're powers and principalities that are manipulating us that, you know, propagate themselves through neural nets and, you know, uh, and they have, uh, they have a central uh, axiom of the value of gaining human attention. Yep. And they, they are designed not to care at all whether that attention comes at the cost of, uh, human well-being or destabilizing geopolitics. Yep. Yep. Uh, There's so, Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that so I, I actually think that capitalism is an is a also a paperclip problem because everything that is representable in a fungible as fungible capital is going to be maximized in a system that is only capitalist, right? And everything that is not fungible. Um, is going to tend to be sacrificed towards it. So I, 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 when I was in my, I was 10 years old, I, my, I had a mentor and he took me to uh, North Carolina to visit his family. And his family um, had this group of, there were five brothers who was his grandfather and his uncles and, and their wives. And they were the most sort of impressive people that I'd ever met. Which is very interesting for me because this stereotype of Appalachians is, of course, extremely, extremely poor. Yeah, but yeah. when I met these people, I had this, this, like the first time that we sat down to dinner, 
the hog had been raised by somebody in that family, had been butchered by somebody in that family and had been, had been cured by somebody in the family. There were trout from streams that had been fished by people from the family. The house that we were uh, in had been built by people in that family, right? That sassafras tea that they'd gathered in the woods, right? And, um, and you know, the, the, the grandfather spoke extemporaneously from the Bible extensively before he sat us all down to dinner. And then after dinner, they all brought out accordions and fiddles and guitars and sang extensive music. So these, these five brothers had toured the country as a, as a bluegrass band in the 1930s. Um, and then they'd all fought in World War II, right? Wow. So every one of these guys, and so, and then their father, those five brothers, their father was a traveling pastor and doctor. And so he used to go around and take medicines and take care of people all throughout that local area. And like that whole idea of elders who are like real culture bearers. This was my first experience of really seeing that and, and having the sense of like, these people are fully realized humans in a way, right? Like everything, you know, uh, uh, what's that famous quote uh, by Heinlein, right? A human being should be able to con a ship, plan an invasion, program a computer, change a diaper, right? Take orders, give orders, uh, you know, live bravely and die gallantly, something like that. Specializations were insane. These were the best representations that I'd seen of that. And it impressed me deeply at that age. So later I was, you? I was 10 years old. Okay. Um, and what was really, I, so I was already interested in anthropology at that early age, but was really impressive about this experience is that they all died within the years between then and the next time that I went to visit the family. Hmm. So I was 10 years old to 16 years old. And when I went back when I was 16, like the family's culture had collapsed. All the food came from Walmart. Nobody was, we had only one person who would play music or sing in the family anymore. Like it all disappeared. It was like yep. it had been colonized by the lowest element of standard American culture and everything yep. had been lost. Yep. And, it, it, and it had, you know, it had left them in my opinion adrift in the meaning crisis. And so all these guys who, who had marriages that lasted their entire lives, who, you know, had good relationships with substances, who were proactive in their church in positive ways. Like they gave rise to a generation, a couple generations later, that was rife with drug abuse, rife with alcohol abuse, rife with spousal abuse, tons of jail sentences, right? It was, the, it was, it was a classic example of how when a culture is disrupted, you know, what, what comes out of it can be this really negative chaos. Yep. So, um, there's lots of directions we can go with that, but the, the key th idea that I wanted to, to bring forward here is those people had many sources of self-worth and that capitalism operates off of the idea of comparative advantage, which is if there's one thing that you do better than me by 2%, right? That's the thing you should do all the time. If it's capturable by the capitalist system, and the capitalist system is going to tend to want to get you to do that as much as possible, which means that you're going to sacrifice every other aspect of yourself. So we don't sing anymore. We let people who have a comparative advantage in singing sing. We don't dance anymore, right? Like more and more people don't even have sex. They just watch professionals do it. <laughs> right? You know, we're Sterily. not going to food, right? And nothing is produced from it. Yep. We're not going to do any of these things. And so, so the problem that I see of capitalism is that it, it, um, it's going to 
to get people to sacrifice all the elements of themselves that don't give them a comparative advantage within the capitalist system. And those are actually the root sources of real self-esteem. You have, you have to be able to contribute to other human beings around you in a broad way, a variety of ways. But now the value of a human being has been collapsed into how much do you earn and how sexy are you? And those aren't sufficient grounds for, for self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. <laughs> Thank you. That's really good. No, I get it. That's a, that, that's a keeper. I got to keep that one. That's, that's, uh, that's in there. Yeah. That's really good. And, and it's amazing how, so the, the culture, when you were 10, the culture that you visited, that was an achievement. And that was an achievement of generations of people working together at something that, that nobody could have sat down and wrote, written that out on a napkin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they were all, you know, so when Peterson was talking to Peugeot, he's, you know, they all had a sense of better, but the better was rich. The better was multi-layered. It wasn't just better in terms of that, that, that difference in capitalism that you talked about. No, that's, that's true. And so one of the, one of the people that I speak to regularly now, I've, I've, I've taken on some people pastorally as it were. Um, and, and one, one person I talk to re quite, quite regularly works a lot with indigenous communities. He's a, he's a psychologist and the, what you saw happen just that fast in Appalachia to that one family, of course, has happened in many indigenous communities around the world and government, whether it's, whether it's Anglo government or, or government of their own people, the solution to that is almost always, whether it's money generated by Indian casinos here in the American West, or if it's government money in Canada, the solution is more money. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, so I have a very funny life history. Um, so my only experience of organized religion as a child was something called the Red Cedar Circle, which it was a revival of Native American beliefs um, taught by a man named Johnny Moses. Um, so Johnny Moses had been raised uh, to be a, a storyteller in the traditions of, uh, of the Tulalip people, I believe. And so he... He was, uh, he was a memorizer. He memorized the stories, right? He had a gift for memorizing. And then as a child, he was taken away and sent to a boarding school and punished for speaking his native language. Um, and then, then later he, you know, started to share these stories and the, and the, and the, the practices, the shamanic practices of his local tradition. And my mentor took me and I got involved between say eight and 13 years old. Um, and so I, it was mostly white people LARPing. Um, it was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a lot of ex-Catholics actually, um, who were deeply traumatized by their Catholic faith and finding somewhere else where they could confess their sins. Um, but, uh, but I did get to spend some time with the native American community and I did get to see and get a sense for the damage that that caused. And so uh, one of the conversations I've had with Viveki has uh, touched on this quite a bit because he, he talks about this um, 
in in the book uh zombies in the and uh in western culture right talks about the idea of domicide and right? he gives the example of the the hellenistic world and the example of um i believe it was a cree tribe the narrow falls cree tribe or it was one of these tribes right and uh and, and what I think of is those Appalachian people. And I, I actually think that like, this is the problem of modernity in, in broader scale, right? And this is also, I think, one of the biggest reasons why we see uh, ethnic conflicts or ethnic differences is because we're all victims of this thing, but it's played out differently for people based on kind of what they had to donate to surviving in the new situation, right? Yeah. So- yeah. Yeah. So if you're if you're in if you're in you know Boston right and you're in the uh, upper class Bostonian right modernity doesn't crash on you quite as hard because you're getting the updates more regularly right and then you go into the backwoods of Appalachia and you might miss ten updates and then the next update that comes in it just crashes your whole system completely and then if you imagine that you're you know you're a Native American tribe right and it's like well modernity shows up and you don't have almost any of the precedents for it. Yeah. The adapt adaptation phase is, is incredibly painful. Um, yeah. And that's actually, this is another interesting line that I'm thinking about, but I actually think that parkour and uh, other sort of, I, I think of them as like liminal subcultures, but they act as bridges, right? Like you can do parkour or skateboarding or snowboarding and it's not, it, it may have arisen in the West, but it's not that Western coded. And so it becomes this place where those differences can, can, can sort of be left aside. And there's this common third space that people can come. That's why I think that a lot of times these like hip hop culture have become such amazing homes for people and ways of finding success for people from communities like that. I, I think the issue is far older than modernity. Modernity became a very powerful one and did it on a scale and in a time frame that was that was exceptional but you can read if you look for example so if you read the bible a lot of scholars believe that many of the books of the old testament arose in their present form around the time of the at least some of the older books around the time of the Babylonian exile, mm -hmm. and you know if you read, you know if you read the Psalms, how can we, you know, our our captors call out, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in this foreign land? The exiles are are weeping because it's the domicide that they've been ripped out of their home. Before the Babylonians did this to the 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 Hebrews, of course, the Assyrians made an art of it. Because when they would conquer a land, the way, you know, it would be like once when the U.S. toppled Saddam Hussein, we decided to move out, to move Iraqis out of Iraq and bring them around the world and then just take other people. We'll take some people from the Philippines and we'll take some Africans and we'll take some South Americans and some North Americans and some Europeans and we'll, we'll repopulate Iraq with all of these people from all over the world so that they will, I mean, that's intentional domicide. Because once you sort of destroy a culture, you have to plant a new one. And in fact, so then you get into the New Testament period, the Samaritans were the, the people that the Assyrians had resettled in the land. And well, how, 
and then if you look in the ancient world, well, how do you respond to that? So they basically had a, at least according to the, the Judeans, they basically had a rewritten text of the books of Moses, but now skewed towards Mount Gerizim and, you know, adapted to them. So they took they, they took what was sort of in the land and adapted it to their new context in order to fabricate for themselves a mythology upon which to run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tolkien, you know, there's always this question, well, what was Tolkien doing? Well, Tolkien said, I am, I am writing a mythology. I'm writing a mythology for us. And of course, Tolkien's mythology is highly modern in that there's really no religion of Middle Earth. The religion is built in, and that's in some ways the best mythology because it it sort of sidesteps the modern the modern invention as Tom Holland, you know, as you can get from Tom Holland, the modern invention of religion because religion is sort of this new invention that comes up in, you know, especially in Protestantism. Um, so there's it isn't just modernity. Modernity has been more effective because modernity actually managed to, to, I think, I mean, why, why buy bacon at Walmart instead of raising the hog, butchering the hog, curing the hog, you know, because modernity in a sense offers an exchange say, you know, doing doing all of that work like you used to do that was a lot of work here at this very reasonable price just go to walmart and buy the bacon i just had a thought i want to throw it at you because i think it feels like an interesting thought so when you buy bacon from walmart instead of raising pigs anymore what you get is cheap bacon right you get participation in the capitalist system you get in some sense you get power right you have you have you have time now to do whatever you want right seems like a great bargain but you sacrifice is your identity and your tradition and who you've been and so in some sense modernity has continually offered us this this thing you can have an iphone right you just have to sacrifice what gives meaning to your life I, there's a there's a there's a member of my local meetup who is married to a Native American woman, and he has a lot of different little speeches about a bunch of different things. But one of his things is about the box, and he talked about the fact that the American government came in. Oh, these Native Americans, we totally destroyed their culture. You know, out of this out of this wealth of sort of uh, performative sympathy, let's give every let's let's give all these women and children food in a box. And, and my friend believes that that completely destroyed any hope of actually having an integral society in that group, because now the women who used to sort of depend on the men for food, and so that, that mutual dependence created an economy that, that had plenty of stress and strain in it, but actually kept the men and the women and the children together. Well, now the women don't need a man because they, the government gives them a box of food. And so what are the men going to do? And, and our lives are full of, you know, our lives are full of this kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I work with people who are, you know, when, once people get to a certain age and they're on social security, uh, the equation is a little different, but I, I know a lot of people on, you know, on disability. 
sort of base American disability if you've got some degree of mental illness, let's say. And so you get kind of crappy healthcare from the government. You get a, you know, maybe $800 a month. There you go. And it, it, on one hand, you, you want to say, well, what are you going to do? Take away their check? How can they live? Well, you've, you've sort of set them up for this dependency. And so then I just have them calling me 10 times a day. What's going on? What, are, what, what should I do? What should I do? Go for a walk. I don't want to go for a walk. So yeah, UBI walk so scares me, right? What's it's that? Like UBI, universal yeah. income. Because I think that, um, I think we don't comprehend how much people need work in order to give their lives meaning and how, you know, it kind of goes back to like the, the Nietzsche idea of like create your own values versus like, no, that's not so easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, the, the word that popped into my mind as you were talking there was, the, you know, Nassim Taleb's concept of iatrogenics, right? Like we, we try to intervene to p- cause something good to happen. And we always run the potential of causing something very bad to happen. Um, and that, that kind of gets to the theme of what, what's really interesting to me about this conversation with you and, you know, why I'm interested in Peugeot and, and other people, because, uh, like I, I love listening to the Weinsteins, right. And, and even, uh, you know, and, uh, Matt Ridley and, you know, Bjorn Lomberg and all these people. And I have this sense that they, or, or Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger for that matter, right. I have this sense that they like, they really, they're, they're nailing the problem that we face in a lot of ways. And they're also, you know, like when you're talking about Bjorn Lomar, they're pointing out like, okay, well, we've also got really good things happening. Right. But I always have this sense that they just don't respect. They just expect the engineering of human behavior to be way easier than it is. (laughs) Right. And so I'm right now, have you read um, the secrets of our success by Joseph Henrik? I, I've, I've read some of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating book. Yeah. So I'm in the middle of reading that. And it's, it's, I think it's going to be one of the most important books that I've read. Like it's, it, it really coherently describes a lot of the dynamics that I'm noticing as someone who's studied anthropology and has, you know, been in these fields for a long time. But I think of culture as in some sense, uh, at least in one sense, as an interface between biology and a local economy and ecology, right? And it, it adapts over time to be well, you know, relatively elegantly adapted to it. Um, the, the issue with, with modernity is that it, the ecology and the economy are now changing much more rapidly than they ever have in the past. And the, and the thing is that evolutionary processes are dirty when they're forced to happen rapidly. Right. So in, in programming, they talk about kludges, right? It's like, you don't have time to make a good solution. So you just, you put something there, but then you then have to write your next programming on top of all the kludges in the last programming. Like that stuff gets more and more built in. Like our, our visual system has to go around the back of our brain and come back. And, you know, it's, it's much slower than it could be because it just happened to be that, that, that vision wasn't that important in the beginning and the olfactory lobe got programmed right into the limbic system and you know so now we're like well we just that's that's how you had to do it yeah <laughs> um, yeah yep. going back yep. uh, so I, I have a sense that that brett's project of like we're just going to transcend our biology 
I don't think that's easy. When he's when he says, I don't I don't care, I don't care what happens. I wouldn't put you in a gas chamber, I think. I bet you I could push enough of your buttons to make you do something really gnarly. And it isn't that hard. It isn't that hard. Well, I think that's I mean, that's one of the most compelling points that I think Peterson has is right. Like, don't don't be so sure. Right. Like I've gone through that journey a little bit myself. You know, I've had some pretty traumatic things happen to me. I've gone through some some stuff in my life and and I've gone through obsessive ideation about very dark things. Right. Uh, it was interesting. Someone was 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 uh, reviewing Savage Messiah, the biography of Jordan Peterson. They're like basically trying to paint Jordan as this terrible person because he used to like imagine stabbing his uh, his schoolmates in the neck. And I'm like, oh, that's imagining it and doing it are totally not the same thing at all. And very good people can end up with very dark things in their imaginations. So. Um, it, what so amazes me is that I, I listen to and read and see all of these people that say things like this. And I think, my, you have been just enormous. Either you're a liar or you've been so enormously privileged to have lived safe from what to me has been just common human depravity. And again, people think, well, pastors don't know any of this because you walk into church and people are sort of dressed up and they're on their best behavior and they're talking nice to each other. But being a pastor is sort of like, especially a small church pastor, being a parent of a large dysfunctional family, except that it's not just all children or people younger than you. It's often people older than you. And and you get a window into just how messy life is. And so all of these all of these utopian images that imagine human beings, what human beings won't do because of peer pressure, I think, have you met a human being? Are you a human being? And that's part of the reason Peterson was so refreshing because he, he just told the truth. <laughs> he forced us to confront that to a shadow, right? Like because so much of this conversation around rationalism, which just takes the, the experience of an affluent sheltered Westerner as the default and the ease with which you can choose to be moral as easy. And, and that's just, that's not the life that I grew up with, right? Like, you know, people look at me and the color of my skin and the way that I speak, right? And they assume that I had a specific type of background. But my reality is that half the kids that I grew up with ended up dead or in prison at one point or another due to drugs and violence and you know um prostitution it's like that that that's 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 the people that i grew up around and uh and there are more people like you than people who are up there making these things because that's most of the world yeah and i mean i i had i had privilege right like we owned the land we're up on and and uh, you know and I wasn't subject to the worst things, right? But I saw them, you know, and I worry about my own kids because they don't see them, right? Because you're are... a good father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I want, you know, it's like uh, you have to invite Maleficent to the, uh, to, the, to the blessing of your child, right? That's right. That's right. You can't That's right. You shelter them too much and they, they no. become, uh, you know, they become Sleeping Beauty. But um, so, so I'm, 
I'm not surprised by the darkness of the human spirit, I guess. And, and I don't think that it's so easily gotten rid of, but I also, I think that I'm more, I think that I see more beauty in it than, than some of the utopians do, right? Like I'm fundamentally of the belief that being is good despite these things, because I've been through it, right? Like I've been sexually abused. I've had people incredibly closely to me raped and sexually abused. I've had close friends die, right? Um, and yet my life is awesome. <laughs> and my day-to-day -day experience, even through most of that, had lots of joy in it and lots of beauty in it. Um, and, and so it's important to me to, to say that being is good because I don't, I, I think that's the only way that you get to the experience being is being good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, one of the real takeaways from Peterson's recorded talk with the times reporter was Peterson continually coming back around and saying, and noting, you know, bitterness is really the enemy. I had someone sort of, so Fridays I do this question and answer on the, on the discord server and someone just kind of jumped in and, and said, you know, well, what about incels? You know, what should an incel do? And I told the, the guy, I said, whatever you do, don't get bitter because once bitterness sets in, that's, that's sort of a soul death um, that very few people manage to escape. In fact, in the Bible, the book of Ruth is about, is, is really about bitterness because Naomi was full and then she goes to Moab and she comes back empty. And so she says, don't call me Naomi, which means full, call me Mara, which means bitter, but standing next to her is Ruth and Ruth will be the passage by which she is once again fulfilled. But that bitterness, that is a, that is in some ways, um, that is some is in some ways the earthly manifestation of what of what Christianity imagines hell to be. Yeah, yeah, I I believe that hell is a is is a psychological reality at minimum. So I wanted to go back to the the Henrik thing for a second because I would say personally I'm I'm aligned with Verveki right in his project right I'm I. I I don't perceive a likelihood that I will ever like be able to say in my head, you know, God came down to earth, became a man, died for our sins, rose three days later. Right. And that, that is, that, that is a fact in the same way that, you know, gravitation is a fact or, you know, that my car needs a gas change is a fact. Like those, those two epistem, I don't see how those two epistemologies are unified. And yet, I also don't, I'm also very skeptical that, that, that a non-theistic, you know, wisdom tradition renewal is a stable solution. And the Henrik stuff is really at the, at the heart of why, right? Mm. I mean, his argument is that human beings are really not that smart. Right. And, and I, I think this is true. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, when, when, you know, I, I keep referencing these guys, but when Daniel Schmachtenberger starts, you know, talking about like laying out the path to the game B reality where we're all not playing non-rivalrous games and there's no rivalrous games left. Um, or I say, man, you are an incredibly smart person, incredibly smart. And I think you are so dead on about some of the problems that we face. 
And yet I really don't think you can just think your way there. And, you know, when Brett Weinstein says, we just need to transcend our biology. It's like, sorry, you're an evolutionary biologist. Like what happens to the people who choose not to have children because it's better for the planet when there are other people who choose to have children because it's good for them? Whose children or just did it unthinkingly. Yeah. Whose children inherit the future, right? The future belongs to those who show up for it. Um, and so I always wonder, like, is this game stable? I mean, right now, most people are not having as many children in the past. But how long does it take for culture or biology to generate a solution that gets to people to start reproducing in the ecological conditions that we do? Because the, the evolutionary game says that's the, that, that anything that doesn't do that is a dead end. Right? That's the game that he's describing. So either we need to, I, 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 and I don't think that that game is utterly corrupt either, right? I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that the world would just be better if there were only 50 million human beings or something. Like I am really, really concerned about what we're doing to the environment and the plastic and the oceans and all those things. But also human beings are sources of brilliance, right? It's this networked mind that creates solutions. Um, every individual human being is a subjectivity that's having an experience of this world that uh, is potentially transcendent, right? One of the books that, that, that Brett Weinstein mentions every now and then, I think he mentions it, maybe he doesn't, but The Alchemy of Air. It's a terrific book about the, um, the scientist who, who developed the process to fix, to fix nitrogen. And the book goes through the reality that before the First World War, I mean, one of the, one of the most important places on the planet was, in fact, a war was fought over an island off of South America that was just full of bat guano because yeah. the only way to keep Germany yeah. feeding its masses was to mine that guano and get it over to Europe because it was the only source of fertilizer. And so a Jew in Germany developed you know, the process to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere so that two things could happen so that artificial fertilizers could be developed to replenish the soil all over the world and so that munitions could continue to be built for the for germany because the same you needed the same you need nitrogen for both explosives and fertilizer which of course came together in oklahoma city but this, he also developed cyclon you know the gas that was used to exterminate the jews in the uh, second world war and also talked about the fact that wow because we were able to do this say before without artificial fertilizer the planet might have a carrying capacity optimally of between three and four billion people mm -hmm. because of artificial fertilizer we have developed this and but in the meantime we have messed up the, the nitrogen cycle this is actually a huge problem that few people talk about partly because there are so many huge problems and that we usually just sort of focus on either the problem that is close to us or the one that is getting all the attention for all these capitalist news reasons. I mean, it, the whole thing is an astounding mess. And one of my <laughs> favorite C.S. Lewis essays is Life in an Atomic Age, because Lewis in the 40s, after the Russians got the bomb, 
everybody in England was freaking out because, well, they felt a little better just having the Americans have the bomb. But then when the Russians got the bomb now, and Lewis's great essay basically says, yeah, but what, what kind of world did you think you were living in? Because everything about this world says we're just, we're just one step away from a collapse. And, and it has been this way for forever because we've seen that in smaller societies and, and the Weinsteins are right. We now have the capacity to see the whole system collapse. And, but then again, please tell me what scientist says it will never collapse. Well, I mean, what is the fate of 99.9% of every species that's existed on earth? Yeah, yeah. This, this is this is why I talk. This is the age of decay. This is how life is, and that is the most. You 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 cannot get around that fact about this material existence we are living right now. There's no getting around it. So, so we face always the problem of decay, right? Yes. We face yep. the problem of potential when things arise, and, yep. and, and so. So coming back to the theme that I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to, to grapple with and I want to talk to you about. So humans aren't that smart, let's say. Um, right. And uh, Heinrich demonstrates- Including the both of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Heinrich demonstrates in, this, in the book by looking at experiments that show that for pure problem-solving ability removed from cultural context, we don't outperform chimpanzees. In some right. scenarios, we have biases that actually make us underperform chimpanzees. Yep. But we have this profound capacity for imitation, which allows culture to propagate. So we've essentially created a second Darwinian space in our shared neural networks yep. that allows uh, the, the honing of, of adaptive behaviors. But those adaptive behaviors are not rationally decided on and built up, right? And, and when we try to do that, we're not very good at it, right? Yep. So culture then sort of, it's passed down over time. And, and I think Peterson, you know, beautifully describes this idea that like the thing that is passed down to us is always the foundation on which we have to build and is also always out of date because things have changed. So yep. we are yep. always faced with how do we progress the system and how do we conserve the things that, that made it survive? Yep. So we have this, this central problem and my, are you familiar with uh, Nassim Taleb's uh, Lindy concept? Yeah. Okay. So, so what's more likely to be around, you know, 150 years from now, uh, transhumanism or the Catholic church? Exactly. Right. The older it is, and at least it's shown dur durability. That's right. We, we have, we have, so, I think we have so much less capacity to recognize rationally what type of sort of um, behavior, ritual, et cetera, um, you know, institution is going to optimize things um, than we realize. So we, we have to, to rely on these things. And so when I look at John's project, right, I, I say to myself, which is the horse that's more likely to be continuing to run in 500 years, <laughs> right? Uh, cog scientific 
non-theism or Christianity? It's not a fair fight. <laughs> it, it is not a fair fight. It just, so, it's not even close. So I'm standing up here and I'll tell you, I'm a non-theist, right? Right. I'm a non-theist. But I, I'm, I want to interrogate the idea that the, solu- the, the only viable solution in some sense, the only thing that, that, is, that has persistently been a vehicle for creating these types of changes that we need over a long period of time is, is a religion. Um, and there's only a few of them that are potentially congruent with the type of system that we're in. Yep. Right. And at the same time, like, okay, so I'm going to explain my idea about non-theistic Christianity for a second. So I have questions on each level, but it looks to me like there are, let's say two levels of implicit Christianity and three levels of explicit Christianity. And it doesn't have to be Christianity. It could be any religion. Right. So the first level of implicit Christianity would be, let's say that Christianity lays out a moral ethic, right? Or a, a direction for your life. And you could be completely unaware of that ethic as being specifically Christian. You could be completely culturally divorced from it and yet you could live towards it, right? You could live in a society where polygyny is accepted and choose to, to be monogamous, right? You could practice agapic love towards your neighbors despite never having heard the concept, yep. right? And I, and I, if I'm correct, and you know, you obviously know this better than I do, that's how a lot of theologians viewed the sort of uh, virtuous ancients, right? Yep. They viewed them as implicitly Christian, yep. as having lived out Christian lives. Yep. Okay. So that's the implicit layer, number one. And when I look at my own life and I look at um, what I saw played out in the counterculture and what I chose not to, to buy into, as far as the behavior of people within the counterculture and what I chose to act out in the way that I formed a family and married and tried to act in the businesses that I did, I say, I kind of would like to think that I've been a decent Christian, <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. Yep. From a moral ethical level. That seems, that seems like um, an admirable thing. And I'm not sure that I have another thing that I could describe as more admirable. So that's layer number one. Layer number two is, and this one's a killer for me and I don't understand it completely. But layer number two is religions provide a cultural grammar that informs the metaphors that we use, that informs the institutions that we create, that informs the norms that we have, that structures our reality. And that thing has been around for 2000 years, giving rise to all the, these aspects of the West that we take for granted and we don't know. We don't know where that ends, right? Like, you know, I listened to Steven Pinker talk to Jordan Peterson and he was sort of like, well, it, it kind of just arises, you know, everything that's good about the West arises sujenaire in, uh, in 1700 with Descartes and Kant. And, uh, and I mean, maybe Christianity had some role to play, but you know, to me, it just looks like the same medieval superstition as everywhere else, right? I'm like, maybe <laughs> like that doesn't okay. <laughs> deeply thought out perspective to me. All right. Um, and, I, and I understand why someone would come through it because like, I remember the evangelical cre- uh, creationist battles of the 1990s. And you could be like, well, clearly that thing isn't the thing that gave rise to what we are, we're, we're trying to do. Right. Um, but it, that just doesn't satisfy me. And, and so I think that I like, 
I think there's incredible brilliance and, and wisdom in, in Buddhism. And I'm also very, very skeptical that you can graft it onto Western society in anything like a direct sort of rational way. Like it could grow within Western society and become a thing. Um, but I don't think it's like, you know, wait, we're all Buddhists now. Like I'm very skeptical that that's a thing. Like I saw, I saw a bunch of white people try to do that with with uh, with Sisiwis when I was in my teens, and I didn't think they were very successful. So that's number two. So then on the explicit layer, you could say, without accepting any of the supernatural claims, you could believe that 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 Christ was a great moral teacher and that his exemplar was something that you would want to act out, and then you could try to act that out um, explicitly. And then the last layer, uh, or the, 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 the next layer is you need, you enter into a practice with other Christians of doing it. And this is where the Peugeot conversation with Peterson was so interesting to me because I, that's very scary to me. Why? Why? Let, we'll come, can we come back to why? Absolutely. Come back to why. Um, and, and then there is accepting the Christian epistemology or ontology of the nature of being and what that, and what that story of Christ's death and resurrection means, right? What does it mean to say that that would, is real, right? And this is where, I'm, I'm, like, I don't think that, that, that Peterson would describe himself in the same way that I do, but I think that we're fundamentally in the same place, that we accept the three, three layers that we're intrigued by the fourth layer, but haven't yet been able to act on it. And that we can't really accept the fifth layer. Hmm. Like I think Peterson is more open to accepting it, but he's not, he's not, he hasn't. It's clear that he hasn't, right? <laughs> um, but I don't even know what the fifth layer is because when you describe your beliefs and when Jonathan describes his beliefs, and when I think about the beliefs of, of the Christians I encounter, I don't actually know that they're the same thing or what they really are, right? I, I can't grasp because, and I, I mean, I think we're going to have to take this up in another conversation because we've been on the phone for quite a long time. And I think this is, this is a difficult one. What is yeah. the epistemology that grounds out the way that you describe the resurrection that could, that could make you a believer, right? Yeah. I, all of these layers are, they're distinct in that we can recognize them as being distinct, but they are all, of course, models of one thing. And, and see, what I would argue is that when you, when you sacrifice for your children, when you put their needs ahead of your own. I mean, and nobody, I, I, I mean, remember when John Verveke did that little talk on agape at the end of, I think, 15 of the awakening from the meaning crisis, myself and other Christians were like, and he just, I mean, our jaws just dropped and I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to talk about this stuff. And he just talked about it in a way that I thought, oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm feverishly taking this in because I'm going to duplicate this thing because he, he just, he just said it so well. When you, when you use agape to substitute your children's welfare, to give your children 
to 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 take a, to diminish your welfare for the sake of your children, to give to practice their well-being at your expense. In a deep level, you are living out that crucifixion in hope of the resurrection. Now, obviously, <laughs> some someone who is someone who is I, I fully understand because I have plenty of modernism within me, plenty of materialism within me. I fully understand the skeptical disbelief in the resurrection. And I, as someone who has lived immersed in this my whole life, regularly betray it in action in the same way that I just said, you affirm it in action. Mm -hmm. So it's not separate from the rest of my life. And, and this is what Lewis talks about in his, his chapter, The Grand Miracle, in his book, Miracles, because what, what Lewis looks at and says, this is, in effect, sort of the, the formula of life in this world, that you and your wife give your life to your children. And you do that in many, many, many different ways. And in fact, once they leave the home, you will keep doing that to your children. And that is, so, so Brett Weinstein might have all sorts of evolutionary language behind that. And those layers are true. But in terms of the mythology of it, in terms of the mythos of it, you are enacting that resurrection of, of, of Christ. Now, as we've seen, and I know as you've seen, you've seen parents pour their lives into their children and their children disrespect the gift given to them. They betray their parents and they do so at such levels that, that even normally good parents are tempted to disown their children, to have regrets about the investment that they poured into their children. And what the assertion of the physicality of Christ's resurrection says is that, and this is where the Peterson-Pajot conversation got really interested, we have lots of reason to be skeptical about the goodness of creation. And we see it in the catastrophes of people's lives around us. What the, what the physicality of the resurrection asserts is that the maker of this creation is determined that all of those betrayals will not finally have the last word. And, and this is how, in order to say, well, I sort of imagine living out the mythology of the resurrection, but I can't believe in its physicality, that in some ways fails the ontological test that Peugeot was really leaning onto Peterson with, that the challenge is just how good can this, can, can just how much goodness can this age of decay hold? And the assertion of Christianity, and it's, I, I, com, I have absolute, I completely understand people's skepticism about this, given the world that they have lived in. The audacity of Christianity says, no, in the end, it will be redeemed. And 
it will not only be redeemed, but it will be transformed because the resurrected body of Christ is different from the first incarnate body because the second body is not subject to decay. In his body, the age of decay ends. Now, again, someone might look at that and say, by virtue of what we know about modern physics, we do not live in a universe that affords that. There is such a thing as entropy, and it will have its day. And the, the crazy assertion of Christianity is to say, no. And <laughs> in fact, what we do is we live in this world of entropy as if entropy itself will be addressed. And that is audacious. But the crazy thing is, that is actually what brings life in this world because you enact it every day when you've, you know, gosh, you're, you've had a long day, you've been working hard, you're trying to make money, you're trying to do meaningful things, but those doggone children, they need to be fed and clothed and taken care of and read to and listened to every darn day. And then when they leave your home, you're still going to even worry about them. And not only are you worried about your kids, you're even worried about your father that has more lives than nine. And, and you don't feel like doing it, but yet you lean and you do it. And someone might say, well, biologically, you've been created for that. And that's exactly what Lewis says. He says, yes, right from the beginning, there have been clues of this other world that you will not rest until you achieve. That's Augustine as well. And that's in a sense, Christianity. And you're exactly right that you have been living surrounded by it implicitly mixed with all kinds of other things. And in many ways, Christianity itself pulls its roots out from well, there's stoic influences in it and of course judaism and and lots of other things come in to make it what it is but that's the story and sort of like you know and again to say well i can't get to the point of articulating that okay but I'm deeply thankful on behalf of your children that you love far more than I do because I've never met them, that that's already inside of you and is working its way out through you into them. And when they themselves hopefully have children someday, they won't know why they're doing it. Yeah, there'll be biology. Yeah, there'll be all of that. But there'll also be this hope that we actually never live up to. So, you know, I, and, and that's quite, there's some powerful proselytizing, my friend. <laughs> I said to my wife after, so, you know, Peterson was incredibly compelling to me. And when he started the biblical series lectures, I said to my wife, like, I might be a Christian at the end of this. Right. And, um, and I wasn't right. And I'm, I'm pretty settled on non-theism. Right. Uh, but emotionally, I felt closer to sort of aligning with Christianity after that Peugeot Peterson conversation than I have because it was the doubt yeah. and it was, and it was the refusal to try to answer it by using the modernist frame, yeah. right? You didn't try You didn't just sit down and sort of try to make an argument of deductive logic about why it had to be true 
the way that scientific facts are true. Right. You didn't do that. You rooted your truth claim somewhere else. And I'm still trying to understand how that truth claim arises. And if it's something like how you live within that and also live within science working, right? How those things live together. Not I mean, always easily, <laughs> which, which is why probably I have at least, you know, the audience that I do have, because there are days when I don't believe this. I don't believe Christianity. I don't believe Jesus. I don't believe the Bible. I have my meaning crisis. I live in those same waters. And so then why, you know, why do I flee to the church? I flee to the church because, you know, last week I preached on Luke 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And that parable in my mind has been bastardized in the modern period because the way Modernity tells the story is that the son comes to his senses and he goes back to his father. And I don't think that's in any way the way the parable actually works. The parable works that the father takes in that, that son who wrecked a village and says, I don't give a shit. He's my son. And that, and the older brother says, screw you, dad. If you're going to, if you're going to forgive if you're going to forgive that piece of shit, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And the, that the older son can't see his own form of rebellion too. So the father goes out to, to goes out to the old older son and says, everything I have is yours. I, I I'm not, you're not going to get me to choose not to love you. You're not going to stop me from working agape on you. And I don't want to live in a world where that isn't true. Now, someone, you know, someone might say, I'm an ostrich sticking my head in the sand. And I'll say, so be it. <laughs> but that's what the faith affords me. And yeah. I think, and I do think that actually this scales and it makes the world a better place, even if I'm wrong, even if the materialists are right. And when Hopefully, I am put into the ground by my children who love me, and it's the big sleep, and it's just lights out for me. If that is true, I still don't regret having lived this agopic life, which is motivated by the hope that I will come out of that grave, and the age of decay will be addressed. Marcus Aurelius once said, you know... If they're gods and they're good, they will reward you for your actions. If they're gods and they're not good, they don't deserve your worship. So be a good man, right? And let the gods sort themselves out. And I almost feel like you're making the same argument but inverting it, right? If, if Christianity is true metaphysically, then I'll be rewarded. If Christianity isn't true metaphysically, it's still the most rewarding thing that I could pursue. Yeah. And, and someone might argue, oh, but that's just because you were raised in a Christian culture. Okay. But there's no other me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have the same sense, right? Like, I mean, it, I, I very much want to study Buddhism and Taoism deeply. Um, and yet I have the skepticism that I could ever inhabit them fully. 
maybe I can't inhabit Christianity fully. I came from, you know, I grew, I grew up in a non-secular. I mean, my parents read the Bhagavad Gita to me and then I spent years in the Red Cedar Circle, right? Um, but it seems to be in the cultural water in a different way. Um, I've been asked what it means to be a good coach, right? And, and I've thought a lot about that. And, and then I came up with this, and you know, I've thought about it in relationship in some sense to, to Peterson and Vervecki's work, because I think that Peterson, for me, he's been the most profound sort of articulator of logos, right? And how that descends from Christianity and Greek philosophy and whatever give ri gives rise to it. But that concept of logos, as he describes it, feels very deeply meaningful to me. And then in Verveke, I found also agape, right? And and it's it's interesting to me because I, I have a sense that like, uh, I'm, I'm worried as we're having this conversation, it's gonna be very alienating to my audience, right? Like Christianity, see, I, you know, I grew up, I, there's a lot of people who are like Christianity is 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 uh, misogyny and sexism and racism and and and, and all these things. That's what it, at least that's what it feels like to me. But I find that those two concepts seem to root a behavioral pathway that can give me a meaningful life and help me bring good into the world better than anything else that I can imagine. Um, and so so I. I've thought about, you know, Peterson also talks about the idea of, um, of the, the father as encouraging and the mother as, as, as nurturing. And I've thought about that in relation to my children, right? Obviously I'm, I'm nurturing to my children, right? My wife is encouraging, but we play those ends of the polarity for sure. Right. Right. And, and so some time ago in my own training practice, I came to this idea that I needed to find a balance between self-discipline and self-care. Right? Because people are always talking about discipline, but I found that the times when I was most disciplined with myself inevitably resulted in a crash, right? But I always, I always broke my own back with my own whip, right? Yep. yep. Opponent then, processing is real. Yeah. But then I would come back and, and I would be like, okay, well, I can see that I need rest, right? Like I, I literally had a panic attack and I blew my Achilles tendon in. Right? Like, okay, so your body needs rest. Like, okay, now the next time that you feel those same things, you're like, okay, okay, I need rest. And then you're like, well, now I'm arguing with people on Facebook about, uh, you know, <laughs> conservatism. Is this, is this the right way to rest, right? Or, or I'm, I'm eating donuts and, you know, playing video games until midnight, right? Is this, is this, is this caring for myself? Just because I'm not doing the thing that I associate with discipline, is it, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And so then I, I, I developed this, this idea that, that self-care, that care is, has a shadow side and that shadow side is indulgence and discipline has a shadow side and that shadow side is abuse. And so we not only need to find a place in between being sufficiently caring and sufficiently disciplined, but we need to make sure that our discipline is discipline and not abuse. And our care is care and not indulgence. Yeah. Okay. And so then I, then I thought about that and I said, well, how the hell do you know? And I said, well, the only thing, the only way that you could, the only way you can balance that is to be invested in deeply loving yourself and deeply knowing yourself. And then this is also your, what you need to do as a coach or a parent, right? Yeah. Like, okay, how do, how do I 
how do I make sure I'm not indulging my child, right? Well, is it actually coming from me loving that child as profoundly as I can and knowing that child and what they need as deeply as possible? Because if it's not, how do I know? Yeah. So, so then I, I had those two poles. Well, the, what are those poles? Logos and agape. And um, here was an interesting aspect of that. I don't, there was some point in the conversation where I wanted to bring this up, but I asked myself the question, well, what, what am I not good at? Where am I falling down in not being my own best friend? And it was like, it's the self-love. And that was really surprising to me because I've always had a very elevated self image, right? I've always thought of myself as special and intelligent and people have told me that since I was little. And so it's like, you know, definitely narcissistic tendencies, right? And and so I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, well, maybe the narcissism isn't actually love. And then I had this, this thing, which was, if you have to tell yourself that you're special to love yourself, then you don't actually love yourself. Because if you have a child and you have to continually think about that child being the smartest, best, fastest, most beautiful child, well, maybe they're not. <laughs> And you still have to love them. You don't love them because your child runs faster than the next kid. You love them because you're your kid. That's right. Because it's your job. Yeah. And you have to do that for yourself too. Yeah. Right? Love yourself not because you're taller and better looking than the next guy. Love yourself because you've got to spend the rest of your life with that person. <laughs> right? You're stuck in this skin. Right? And so you have to forgive yourself. Now, that's why I wanted to tell that, that, that kind of insight because it connected to that idea of the prodigal son, right? It's that idea that, that this agape that we're reaching towards, um, it, it's rooted in responsibility, right? It's rooted in, you don't do it because of the attributes of that person. You don't do it because of even the expectation of return. You do it because in taking responsibility to do it, you are contributing to the world becoming a better place. I, I love your logos and agape as, as, as those two, let's say fixed stars. And, and of course, as a Christian logos and agape. So then the question is, well, how can logos and agape come together in one human life? Christianity says logos and agape come together in one human being. Yeah. And so then the question of, okay, how can I, if I, if I want to have an understanding on Logos and Agape, where can I find an example of it? And I, for me, that is, okay, so the whole Bible is the whole Bible, but I love the Gospels. I love reading about Jesus. The thing is, the deeper you get into the Gospels, the more you're drawn into the rest of the book, because like Peterson shows, that whole book is hyperlinked together. And suddenly you're, you're understanding how all these stories are told in the context of all of these other stories, so on and so forth. But for me, you know, for me right now, I am, you know, we're in a, we're in a, we're in a, a, a situation right now in our culture where institutions are just going to be shredded. And, you know, I am in a, I am in a dying church 
in a denomination that in the next five to 10 years is probably just going to be completely pulled apart by all of the same things that we see, you know, racism, sexism, all of, you know, all of these issues, it's just going to be shredded by it. And, and so then I look for, I need a guide, someone who can show me how to, how to embody both logos and agape in the midst of this conflict. And that's when I, I look, I look to Jesus and I look to Jesus in the gospels. And of course that's informed by Jesus and the rest of the book, which is a whole complex thing. And that then actually connects me into 2000 years of conversation. And I, I fully appreciate that. So people only see me on my channel and they don't see me in the context of my life in terms of the communities that I've always dealt with. But, you know, when I, when I, when I make, I made the point last week in my sermon, cause I read some things from the book of Job that Job owns slaves. And a lot of the folks in my church are black and that word slave has a, you know, has a, has a catch in their heart different than what it might have in mine, even though I've got Jewish and Frisian ancestors, they were slaves. They were slaves of Romans. They were, you know, almost most of the world's slaves were slaves of their neighbors. That's the way slavery worked in the ancient world. So the, one of, one of the things that I notice is that all of the, the reason we have a problem with misogyny is because Christianity gave us the tools to criticize misogyny. And Christianity gave us the tools to criticize the patriarchy. Christianity is this deeply, um, there's deep dissonance in Christianity with all of these ancient structures and the radicality of Jesus coming in the midst of them. And Jesus steps into this Judean civil war which it was a culture war, at least at the time in the, you know, in the twenties and in the twenties when he was living, but it became and turned into a full blown civil war in the sixties. And, and so then I asked myself, how am I to navigate logos and agape and practice it in my life? Where can I get direct coaching and instruction in this? And that's, you know, when people ask about the practice of, of Christianity, well, I, I, I look at Jesus. Okay. And, but that's only the beginning of, as you well know, that's only the beginning of the quest because how, how am I supposed to know the real Jesus? Cause I'm reading this text that's 2000 years old and dissected and attacked and studied more than any other text in all of human history. So it, you know, it, it, it doesn't end but at least I need a point to begin with. And so as a Christian, that's where I begin because I look at Jesus and say, okay. And again, within Christian practice, I can talk to Jesus, which, you know, even Verveke comments that, you know, you put a sign, you put a sign above the donuts, let's say, you know, you put a picture of eyes above the donuts with the little tin cup to pay for your donuts and people pay more before they see the eyes. I mean, it's all that exaptation that works. And, and again, whether, whether I'm just fooling myself or not, it's, it's all there for me. 
and stoicism too right stoicism yeah, is, is similar things about you know having a relationship with the sage right getting some socrates inside of you and Buddhism right. Too, right having yep. your nature right yep yep um, i again there's a place in which we can we can we can we can find uh let's say materialist grounds for reasonable ways of thinking about this right so you could say, I'm talking to Jesus, and you could think, imagine Jesus is a thing experiencing a consciousness the way that you and I are experiencing consciousness, and that he's sitting on a chair in the sky, you know, with a halo over his head, um, and a, you know, beautiful brown beard, and and he's, he's he hears you, right? And uh, the other billion people talking to him, right? And somehow he's able to, to talk to all of you at the same time. Right? And I don't know that that's not true. Uh, it seems unlikely to me, but you could also say that that there's an image, right? An image that has been passed down and refined over thousands of years that that can colonize you, and that you can you can do a better and better job of 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 communicating with that image, and that image may represent some archetypal structures within you that that you already have, right? Or maybe it refines something that's in you, right? Maybe there's, maybe there's the, there's the divine or heroic second self, and then, uh, and then there's a way to express that that's specifically Christian, and by engaging in a certain way of practicing, a certain way of thinking, you can bring that aspect of yourself into clearer and clearer communication with the rest of you. And also knowing at the same time, there's lots of other people doing this practice that I disagree fervently with about a whole bunch of things of what they're learning from that Jesus. And that's happening at the same time too. Yeah. As, uh, you know, Ricky says, you know, everyone who goes, uh, has a psychedelic, uh, uh, you know, vision, right. They all feel like it was the most meaningful thing that they've ever experienced. And they all feel like they got a direct drink of the truth. Um, and then their truth can be very, very different. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we plan to do a 90-minute interview. I think we're going on uh, 130 or something. Uh, it's quite a few. Um, I feel like there's a lot still that I really want to talk to you about. Um, I'm deeply intrigued, let's say, by the promise of Christianity. I recently read a bunch of Native American history, and I read... Uh, I read a history of the Comanches, the history of the Lakotas, and a history of the Cherokee. And, and I've read a lot of history, right? And, and I, I think that most people, when they, when they demonize the West, they're just profoundly historically ignorant because every sin that you can attribute to Western culture, um, you know, with the exception of, say, the nuclear bomb and some of the powers that we've created, right, uh, is attributable to every culture, right? We are not the only people who had slaves. We're not the only people who, who you know, had circuses. We're not the only people who who engaged in blood games. We're not the only people who you know, spread disease, colonized. What's intriguing to me is this. When, so the story of the, of the Cherokee is an incredibly in, tragedy. It's an insanely powerful story. Here are the people who converted to Christianity, right? Who, who adopted the life ways of the West extraordinarily successfully in many ways. And they, they did their level best and they sent their children to universities and they were integrating. I mean, it could have been one of the great stories of integration in human history. Yep. yep. 
and and their neighbor said, we just don't care. There's no, there's no level of living up to what we ask of you that will get us to forgive the color of your skin. That's and right. so we're just going to kick you, uh, kick you off your land and take it and send you to Oklahoma. And we really don't care what happens to you. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's the story of America's original sin right there. I mean, yep. along with what happened to African-Americans and all these other tribes. But, yep. but here's a weird, there's a weird thing about that story, which is that the Cherokee went to those schools because there were missionaries who were showing up and those missionaries were screaming that this was unjust and they were fighting to make a change and they were going to Congress. And maybe I haven't read enough history, but I'm having trouble imagining such people at the court of Genghis Khan or in a Comanche village saying, you got to stop going and, 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 and destroying the Spaniards' villages. So Christianity, it looks to me, has, has, has had some impact. At least people have, have been couching their pro-sociality in Christian terms for a long time in the West. Yeah. And yet, I was also reading uh, History of the Crusades, right? The reading about, uh, about Richard the Lionheart, who's a great hero in Christian mythology in some ways, right? But what did he do in Sicily, right? What did he do on islands that were full of Christians on his way to the Middle East? Yep. I, I have the Sam Harris in my in me, right? I have the the secular humanist uh, who 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 has looked at the history of Christianity and said this is bathed in blood. Yep. And and I think that it's. I think it's a conversation that really needs to be had deeply to say, this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, I like to tell people that I think parkour is a life-changing sport and it can really change people's lives in positive ways. And I think that it's incredibly important that if I make that claim, that I'm making that claim as carefully as I can and that I'm not claiming something for parkour. And I'm making clear that anything I claim for parkour that's true of something else, I'm making that clear, right? And if there is something that I think parkour uniquely offers, then I, I better have a damn good argument on why it uniquely offers it. Yep. So I think there's an argument that, that there is something that we really need that Christianity offers and it's not, and I'm not sure, maybe it's also equally true of Buddhism or maybe Islam, but I don't know fully, but I don't think that you can really make the case without looking at all the places in which the case has fallen down. So I'd be curious to, to keep that conversation going with you. I'd be curious to dig deeper into, um, there's a lot, <laughs> here's my list of things I wanted to talk to you about, um, right? Uh, oh, this would be a good one. Aside from souls, what have we lost by becoming unchurched as a culture, right? Um, theosis, uh, the Christian concept versus the, uh, versus the Buddhist idea of, uh, you know, nirvana and the, the, the universal soul. Um, metaphorical truths and, and these wars that we're fighting, right? There's so much yeah. that I'd like to do. So um, if you're up for it, I'd love to, uh, to jump on the line again soon and, and, and keep it going. But I think my, my, my speaker crapped out, my camera crapped out. <laughs> I'm going to be interviewed again in two hours. I need to get all my <laughs> equipment back. We outlasted your machines, John Henry. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah, thought we could do this again. That'd be great. I felt like that as well. No, let's that de let's definitely do it again because you're you're very right. These 
Christianity has to answer for these things. And, um, but it, it's just so hard to judge because all Christians are human. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the openness and the, and the, and the, you're not a lying preacher. <laughs> At least I'm not caught. Yeah. At least you're trying, <laughs> trying to tell the truth. Trying to tell the truth. At least don't as lie. best I can. No, this is a pleasure, Rafe. And um, yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk again. This is this is this is this is what I love to do, and this is why I do this to be able to be because you're, you know, and I watched Peterson and Peugeot, and and you know I listened to you, uh, Sevilla King, just with her little part one of her commentary with many, many people I know are, are where you're at. And my challenge as someone who has authority within a church tradition is, okay, how, how can I serve you? How can I help you? Because the church has to own up to its failures. And how, how do we move forward? Um, the church, you know, if you look at the parable of the prodigal son, the father doesn't sit with his arms folded and says, until you're ready to, I'm, I'll have nothing to do with you. That's the position of the older brother. <laughs> um, and in fact, he's not even offering that much. So the church, the church is a missionary church. And, and what that means is it, it has, to, has to engage people where they're at. And at least, especially in the Protestant tradition, my biggest struggle right now is to ask myself, you know, how can I be helpful to people like you and Jordan Peterson and Sevilla King and how many friends and family and people I share a neighborhood with, um, in, especially in the light of how the church has failed historically. And I don't mean just the church in terms of crusades or or residential houses or any of that, but the church on this corner and the church that I, we, we've got plenty of failure to show. And so how do we, how do we, how do we make progress and what does progress look like? I don't know, but that's, that's my job and it's my quest. For some reason, I'm, I'm struck by the idea that, that, that pastors maybe <laughs> need to practice uh, Peterson's call right? Imagine yourself as the perpetrator of Auschwitz, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe people need to imagine themselves as the perpetrator of the Inquisition yeah. and the perpetrators of, of, you know, shutting down the sex scandals in the Catholic Church and, yeah. you know, excusing the, the colonization of the New World and the excesses of it. Yeah, and there's I, a lot of shadow work, I guess, yeah. from a young well, incense for all of and, us. And we see that performatively in terms of our culture right now, because you can find video after video of pastors and denominations apologizing for racism and sexism and crimes against LGBT community. And, and I watch these and I think, I'm not impressed. You know, it takes, okay, you're sorry, good. How, how, how do we actually live out a new reconciliation. Yeah. Did you live it? Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Much, much to discuss. Let's do it again yeah. soon. Um, All right, Rafe. I need to, I need to jump off, but uh, it was a real pleasure. And I, yeah. I look forward to, to speaking again. Same. Glad we me. got back to it. 
yeah take care bye-bye thanks for listening to the evolve move play podcast if you really like the content we're putting out make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review it helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.